Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Today, we welcome Kate Denson out of Washington, D.C. Kate is the Urban Programs Director for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the D.C. area, as well as the founder of D.C. Justice Tours. Well, thank you, Kate, so much for being willing to be on our podcast. Um, With most of our audience in academia, would you share a little bit about your educational background, as well as how you ended up in your current vocation? Hey, yeah, thanks for having me on. This is uh, super fun to get to be a part of this. And uh, for me, yeah, I went to the College of William & Mary undergrad, graduated with a degree in sociology in 2007, came on staff with InterVarsity right away, uh, and then uh, later, a few years later, started a master's of theology at Fuller Seminary, which I did distance uh, through their Colorado campus. Uh, Graduated from there in 2016. An MA in uh, theology, was that? Yes, yes. Okay. And how was that experience for you? Yeah, I totally loved getting that degree. It was, it took about six years, which I think actually isn't super long for somebody who's working full-time and the fuller degree tends to be one of the longer theology degrees. Uh, but I probably took, I don't know, one, sometimes two classes at a time and I've always been somebody that really liked reading on the side. So it was kind of like having guided reading and Then like once a quarter, I would go out and get to spend time with other people in ministry. It was usually folks that worked for Young Life, sometimes people that worked for InterVarsity. I got to take some really interesting classes. Like uh, I really liked church history quite a bit and got to go to Sundance Film Festival actually one year, which that was super incredible. Uh, Just the kind of like once in a lifetime, can't imagine myself ever doing that again kind of thing. So how did that fit in with the the master's program, what? what yeah, it was like arts and culture. And so uh, you got 10 tickets uh, to any film, almost of your choice. Like there were some, sometimes where they had to kind of figure out based on what other movies other people wanted to see. And then if there were Christian filmmakers or people that were just willing to come and talk, there was a group that would meet together at a church in town every morning. And then different people would come in and share about their movie in the morning. So we could ask questions about it right after the premiere. I went in 2013 and the, my favorite movie, which actually won Sundance uh, that year was Fruitvale Station, uh, which was put together by somebody who I think also did a lot with Black Panther. Uh, And actually there are some people that are, some people that I know that know people that are Christians that are uh, people that put that film together. So that was, um, Fruitvale Station is about, uh, black man in Oakland who was killed on their public transit system and uh, just of course became really relevant to our world uh, after the time of like Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin Mm -hmm. and uh, his name was Oscar Grant and he died in 2009 Uh, but the film came out at Sundance in 2013 and it was a real honor to be in the audience for that one. Wow yeah that's definitely interesting. I have not actually heard of that movie so I'll I'll have to check that out. Yeah. it was like Michael B. Jordan's sort of premiere film. Wow. No kidding. Yeah, yeah definitely look into that one. Um, so then in addition to your ministry role with InterVarsity, uh, you give justice tours in D.C. Can you share a little bit about how that came to be? 
yeah, it's kind of a long set of, of stories, but my sophomore year of college, which was 2004 to 2005, I would say it was basically the year that changed everything in my life. Uh, I led a small group for InterVarsity, which I think really transformed the way I saw relationships and what it means to be a good friend to somebody. Uh, and then later that year, got asked to lead our chapter spring break trip, uh, which at that time was to Camden, New Jersey to work with Urban Promise, which is like a mostly after school type program there. Uh, and I just loved the loved the trip. Um, and while we were there, our trip leader, which who worked for Urban Promise, lived at this intentional community in Camden, New Jersey, which was called the Camden House. Um, it was a sister community of a maybe more famous one now called uh, The Simple Way or A Simple Way, uh, okay, which yeah. is in Philadelphia. And the famous name there is Shane Claiborne. So uh, yeah. when I went on that trip, uh, Shane Claiborne's book hadn't come out yet. But at the end of the week, the trip leader read us an essay by him, which actually was part of the book by the time I got it a year later. So uh, I think just a lot for me shifted on that trip. Um, part, probably the moment I look at and think, everything kind of clicked. I was a sociology major. I was having lots of questions about did Christians really care about justice issues or not? And this trip leader took us on what he called a reality tour of Camden. And I think for me, it was like in that day, I saw for the first time Christians that lived their faith. Like there wasn't a disconnect between they were what they were buying money on or who they spent time with or where they chose to live, that all the things in their life were deeply influenced by their faith. Uh, and at that point, I'd, I had interaction with maybe like secular activists, but um, getting to see that from a Christian perspective, it was, I think I had walked into the trip knowingly or unknowingly feeling like I was like, if, if Christians can't do this well, I'd rather just be not a Christian and care about justice and activism in service mm -hmm. on my own. But uh, seeing that Christians seem to get it more than anybody else after this trip, it's like, I want to be a part of that with the rest of my life. And so uh, that was really like a major conversion time for me. But I think getting to be a part of that tour, he took us on a tour, this reality tour. He took us to different parts of the city and would tell stories about how Camden got to be the neglected community that it was. Uh, and there was just something powerful about the visual plus the story. So like several stats that I remember, but one was like we, we saw all these power plants and trash incinerators. And, you know, he talked to us about super fun sites and how uh, when something like that is in a neighborhood, in, invariably health, health effect, there are health effects for all the people that live in that neighborhood. Yeah. So uh, it was something like 60% of the kids in his neighborhood had asthma because of all mm -hmm. the environmental uh, factors. And it just, things started to really connect the dots for me. And um, later, right after I got married, my husband was going to be in grad school. And in DC, uh, most of our schools are private and it was going to be like $50,000 out of pocket a year. And uh, we just thought we needed extra money. And so I, I found out about a tour guiding class and uh, just loved the class. At the end of the class, you had to write your own short tour Sorry, we have a baby in the background. Uh, the, the short tour I wrote was of the neighborhood where my church is. Um, and so I tried to do something similar to what he did, like do a reality tour of that mm -hmm. neighborhood um, and talk about the issues going on there, which for that neighborhood would be gentrification. So 
being physically present, there was something about that for you. Like you talked about the trash incinerator and then hearing that statistic that you said 14, was it 14 years later? How many years? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been about 14 years since that trip. And I still remember it vividly. Uh, I think because it was something about the visual plus the word coming together. I think, I mean, in InterVarsity, we have this term we talk about called a discipleship cycle. And it's like, hear the word, do the word, talk about the word or something like that. And to me, it's, it feels very similar. Like there's something experiential about being in a place and talking about it and hearing about it all at one time. Right. And it engages like all of your senses. So Mm -hmm. your, your brain probably is actually able to remember it better having engaged all those senses rather than just, you know, reading words on a page or hearing someone give a talk. Um, physically being in that space uh, enables you to really be impacted by it. And it's interesting that that tour so many years ago inspired you to uh, figure out how to do that in your own neighborhood. So yeah, can you share a little bit about like what a typical tour that you would give would be like? Yeah, definitely. So like typical audience uh, would be like usually right now it's mostly churches or some kind of school. It could be like a college group, a college class. I've done a few for high school history classes in DC. We have a DC history requirement. So I've done a few DC history classes, things like that. Uh, Typical tour is two hours long. You have to think a lot about like the layout of the place when you're putting it together. Uh, Because really in two hours, you can only handle like about a mile worth of walking at most and have less 10, eight to 10 stops to talk. Uh, I always try to like build an arc of history. So I try to think through like the origins of the neighborhood and how that fits into the any wider context of any like common knowledge about the city or about D.C., Uh, And then I usually sort of pull it through and try to spend some significant energy on uh, current events. So, and for my current events, I actually spend a lot of time looking at like op-eds and uh, different newspapers to try to figure out what, what's kind of like the hot topic as it relates to that area. Uh, And I'm usually trying to look for things that are controversies too, not just Mm -hmm. like facts, but things that would pull out hot button issues that would make for good discussion topics. So all of the tours are different. There's not like a standard set tour that you give. Yeah, no standard tour. At this point, I've written about seven tours that are of specific neighborhoods. And a couple of them I've written for organizations or to try to highlight a particular issue. Almost every time that I think for me, the biggest thing is thinking about like what you call theology of place. And so I'm more interested in pulling out the story of the neighborhood rather than doing something that's going to be like a cookie cutter beginning and kind of tour. So, and obviously our listeners are hearing a baby. So yeah, Alexander is a year and a day and uh, he's doing life with me most of the time. Doesn't usually get to come on tours, but uh, and the rest of the time when I'm doing my university work from home, he's usually hanging out. Nice. Well, yeah, and it sounds like he's interested in sharing his thoughts on this yeah. podcast as well. So. <laughs> but yeah, so you would have uh, different groups of people and you consider like who's going to be on the in the tour or what, or do they kind of ask like we would like a tour on this particular area in this topic or... 
Uh, so there are lots of tour guides in DC. So I think what I tend to bring is something that's like a justice edge to it. And if somebody's looking for like a patriotic tour, they're just going to go somewhere else. So if they're looking for what I'm offering, most of the time that happens because they've been on one of my tours or they've heard about it from somebody and they're looking for like a, a deeper discussion in their church or their classroom about how justice relates to history and how that relates to today. So then you shared earlier about like your experience in Camden, uh, seeing the trash incinerators and hearing about asthma. What would be um, one of the places that you take people in your neighborhood that sort of is similar, like that you've, that's meaningful to you? Yeah. So there's one that I, I added recently. So H Street is the neighborhood, like H as in hockey or something. Uh, H Street Northeast is considered, uh, according to Forbes, it's the sixth hippest neighborhood in the United States. And that was a couple years ago. It's highly, highly rapidly gentrifying. And that's where my church community meets. Uh, when I first gave the tour, which had about 10 stops, now out of those 10 stops, about five of them still exist. And that was four years ago. So I've added some new ones in recent years just because I, did, I was like, well, have I gentrified myself out of a job with this tour? Uh, but, it, but I think it's like gentrification, which is like the uh, sort of movement of a neighborhood from being maybe middle or lower income to being higher income. That takes on different flares at different times. And so there's this neighborhood. Now, uh, I like to talk about the story of a church there. And so there's a church on H Street that's a historically black Methodist church and a new church plant wanted to meet and use their building. So they would rent their building in the evening and uh, the black church would meet in the morning. The historically black Methodist church would meet there in the morning and the new church plant, which was predominantly white, but mostly young professionals would meet in the evenings. Sooner or okay. later, uh, there comes a moment where the church of mostly young professionals wants the morning slot mm. uh, because they have young families and they would prefer to meet in the morning. So the pastor approaches the, uh, the pastor of the church that has always existed in that space uh, and says, hey, uh, we would like to meet in the morning. There's kind of a back and forth, back and forth. And in the end... Uh, basically says, we're going to pull the money if we don't get the time slot. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it was basically the only way that that older church was able to make their rent um, in the, with the neighborhood being as expensive as it is. And so what I like to do with a group there is I, I explain the situation and then I ask, what do you think went wrong here? Or what do you think could have been done differently? And I just let people kind of hash it out. Uh, and that has been super helpful. I think it's like a very case in point of how gentrification plays out. And I found it through just like an expose article on the internet. Interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, essentially the, the people that were there first have been displaced. Right? Exactly. And so they're dependent on new people in some way to make the rent, but then there are all these power complications around, uh, money and race and class and all those things that come in age that come into play in that situation. And I appreciate it. Sounds like you present the facts to your tour group and allow them to sort of arrive at their own uh, conclusion about how, you know, how is this an injustice? You're not necessarily uh, 
I don't know if it's, if it's leading per se, but maybe this question that I'm asking you now is leading, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Like they are able to see the actual place, their feet are on the ground right next to it. And they are hearing the facts about what happened in that place. Um, and, and being able to see for themselves, you know, what has become of the community. Totally. Yeah. Let me insert on that. I think as like a social justice activist minded person, there can be a lot of times where you feel like you're trying to change somebody's mind on something. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple ways to go about that. And this has felt like a very, a very safe, approachable way, because literally I can go up to a place and say, Hey, this is the history. What do you think about that? And I really don't feel like I'm adding in a lot. And I may put together different facts in a different type of way, but it has felt like one of the most convincing ways to get people to to really be on the side of justice and the marginalized, uh, especially people that maybe otherwise wouldn't be because they don't really know the situation in a personal way. And so you can kind of bring people right up to it and say like, hey, look at how big this church is. Think about how expensive it is to keep keep this open. Imagine you'd been in this church for your entire life and suddenly you can't make the rent anymore. And it just means something different uh, than me sitting down trying to lecture somebody on that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then you're, you're seeing it with your own eyes. You're physically in that space rather than just reading a statistic about gentrification in a book or on in an article online or something like that. Exactly. Um, so what else um, about giving these tours has been meaningful to you? Well, one, I think just getting to learn myself about the history of neighborhoods and my city has been super helpful. Finding like an alternative method to connect uh, in terms of justice issues. Uh, and I think just seeing seeing ways that people actually live differently after going on them, I think has been pretty amazing. Uh, I think I would have probably said, because I run our urban plunge programs for uh, for InterVarsity. So what I'm used to is like taking somebody through an entire week or a summer and watching their heart be changed for the sake of the city and the sake of the marginalized. And I think I would have been somebody before that would have said two hours is not enough. You know, that I would have said you need a couple months, you need a year. And in some ways, probably like more time equals deeper lasting change. Uh, but I think what I've noticed is that two hours can actually make a pretty big difference if it's done well. So I have a lot of friends that go to uh, churches in DC that particularly are like newcomers to the city. And in DC, there are, there are a lot of narratives around gentrification and new people, old people, displacement, all those things. And I think there are a lot of new people that actually, they want to treat the people who've been in DC for a long time with respect and with love, especially if they're Christians, they, they're they aware that something isn't right about the way the city is operating socioeconomically and they want to be a part of something different, but they just don't have the tools to know what to do different. Uh, and so I think for me, I've been able to take some of the things that we unpack over the course of a week through like an urban plunge or maybe a summer through a urban program and pack them into a couple of hours. So just a real cl- couple of clear examples. We just, we tell students on our spring break programs, you need to greet everybody in the neighborhood. Mm. In our lower income sections of DC, almost everybody is black. It's a really Southern culture and people greet each other. If you don't yeah. greet, 
it's clear that you're not from here and it actually can come off as a sign of disrespect. And so I say that to people in a a couple of our neighborhoods where we, where we do the tours, uh, they're mixed enough that if you say hello, people will say hi back. What I've noticed is that the, the more gentrified or the more like upper middle class or white a neighborhood, the less that people are going to say hi back. Uh, But we tend to be in predominantly black or Latino neighborhoods uh, folks are going to say hi back to the people on my tour. And so a lot of people talk about how that actually was a huge game changer for them living in the city. Uh, because mm-hmm. then they realize, oh, wow, when I say hi to my neighbors, they say hi back. And then it's like something starts to develop there. Sure, uh, yeah. You just didn't even know how to get the conversation started. So I talk about saying hi. One of the other big tips we always throw out is you need to use terms of honor. So we say ma'am and sir, when we're having a conversation. And I think that has gone a long way for folks in terms of realizing, wow, it's opening up new relationship because I'm communicating that I I see this person as somebody who needs to be honored and listened Mm -hmm. to, not as, um, I don't know, just somebody, sometimes I think with gentrification, we can get this feeling uh, that happens where it's like, you just need to leave so that I can have my like urban playground. And, mm. uh, and whether that's said explicitly or implicitly, I think there, there has to be a lot. I think there's a lot of onus on the newcomer. Uh, I would say going like more in like a Philippians two type of mindset. If like you need to go from uh, beneath and humble yourself so that um, you can learn what it means to be a servant and a real member of this community. Hmm. And it, in some ways that feels like, Oh, it's common sense. Yeah. Greek someone, but in other ways, you're really just giving people permission and tools to love their neighbor. Yeah. And I think most people, that's what they want when they come on my tour. I think DC is such a like nerdy city that people do, like, this is what someone would do on a Saturday for fun. It's like, well, my husband's black and he would say, this is what white people do for fun on Saturday. <laughs> they go on tours in DC. And I think that's true. I mean, I would say there are, there are a lot of like wonky people, like policy wonk is like a term that we use here. There are a lot of wonky <laughs> people who think it's like a fun thing to do, to go on like an educational tour on your Saturday or Sunday. And uh, I'm one of them and totally feel like it's, I've just found the right market. Um, and I think there are just, there are lots of churches full of people that they want they want to be a part of something positive in the city. And they're just looking, they're looking for basic tips. Uh, like some of my people go on my tours and they, one of the things I say a lot in gentrifying neighborhoods is if you're a newcomer, you need to think about where you're spending your time and your dollars uh, and thinking about, are you spending most of your time and money in institutions or restaurants and establishments that have come in in the last 10 years, or are you thinking about the places that have been around for a long time? So like think deeply about where you go to church or what school you send your kids to, or, you know, on Friday night, you're going to go out to eat, which restaurant are you going to pick? Those kind of questions I think can really, they're practical. Uh, Some of them are harder to apply than others, but for many people, those feel like tangible things that they can do. And often I get, I know a lot of these people, so they come back to me and say, oh, wow, that made a big difference for me. Sure. And then, so as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about my own, um, I live in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which isn't a big town at all. It's super small, but we recently had, they had like a whole bunch of development, the Hershey company. I don't know if they sold off some land or whatever, but our downtown is, um, there are now like seven new restaurants. And before it was just like an old post office building and and things like that. Um, And thinking about how many of those restaurants my husband and I have already been to, um, 
versus like the restaurants that have been there for decades, uh, you know, family owned from this community. And now there are these chain restaurants that um, just came in and they're taking, basically took over. And even we were thinking about gentrification and how is this new development in Hershey going to change um, this one complex that uh, is like apartments there and what will happen to the people that are there if the rent goes up, right? Super um, real. Yeah. So even in small towns, this this gentrification happens and it it's, has the potential to displace people or even just to, yeah, like you talked about honor. And I thought that was really interesting in, the, in realizing like we need to honor the people that have been here for so long. And, and just a simple way to do that is just by looking at someone in the eye as you pass them on the street and, and say hello. So, so with that, do you have any suggestions for people who would be interested in exploring the history of their own cities or towns, or, you know, if they live in a rural area, like trying to kind of not maybe create their own personal justice tour to kind of explore more of what, what's happening in their area? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. And I, I, it's like actually not that hard to put something together. Uh, I think one, a lot of places actually have tours that you can go on. And I, even to develop, most of my tours have been on like sort of the standard tour uh, just to like get information and get the basics down, you know, because like if you're going to show someone the Capitol building and maybe I'm going to use it to talk about how the Capitol and the National Mall are... Uh, historic protest space in our nation, uh, I probably also need to talk about there's a dome and the dome came on during the Civil War. And, you know, like, this is where the Senate meets. This is where the House meets. So you still need to know some of, like, the basic information. And so uh, if there are tours in your community, I would say they're worth going on just to learn from. Uh, I also think uh, Wikipedia is actually a really great resource. Uh, they put a lot of the basics on there uh, and they tend to link to a lot of articles, which is, that's actually, uh, tell, uh, tell my secrets, but uh, that's my number one source is Wikipedia for the stuff that I do. They do just a good job of making things concise and pulling things together. Uh, a lot of times there's local history. If you go to like a, to a library, sometimes you can find like a few books on maybe your state or your city. I always like to lay the groundwork and connect to like different parts of history that maybe folks would have heard before. So like if I was giving a tour of like the West, I would want to talk about uh, Manifest Destiny and talk about like how did this area even come to be. And you want to kind of pull on the fact that hopefully a lot of people on your tour have been to school in the United States up until high school, you know? And so you think of like, what can I pull on that connects with what people maybe already know and go from there. Um, and then my other big thing is I, I like to look at op-eds. I like to look at op-eds and then more recent newspapers. And a lot of times you can just do that now through Google. So like if I'm doing one of like H Street Northeast, which is the one I keep talking about, I can just Google H Street Northeast DC. And every time I'm giving a tour now, because in this area, it's one of the areas that gets written about a lot. I always go in and Google it just to see, is there anything new that's come out? Uh, because I want to be able to show up already ready to talk about if anybody comes on the tour and is like, oh, did you read that article? Or did you see that thing? And uh, be ready to, to pull it up. Um, I always try to do a lot of like driving around looking for, a lot of times there are like historic markers in places like that too. And Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Um, it's really not that hard to put together. When I'm doing something walking, I think with like a one mile radius at most, at most one mile. But if you're driving and sometimes in more uh, like rural places, it's possible to do something that's driving. And so, you know, you can kind of get a larger uh, area to cover there. It's interesting because you talked about the historical markers and I feel like those are all over the place, but they're yep. often overlooked, right? We just pass by them, not without intentionality. And so with this intentionality, are, do you feel like it's shaped the way that you see communities? Totally. So uh, let me tell a story. So um, okay. my family is from Texas. Um, and on my dad's side, uh, we are considered one of what you would call like the daughters of the Texas Republican, the, the Texas Republic, not Texas Republicans, Texas Republic. So, <laughs> okay. uh, but now when I sort of see that in the context of a larger history and start to think about things from a different perspective, I'm aware that, oh, my family are some of the first white settlers on the land that came in with Stephen F. Austin when there were Americans that were invading Mexico. They, and then I look at the, the history of my family and I went to visit with my father a family cemetery, which was in the middle of nowhere in a city called Meridian, Texas. And we literally had to like climb over two farm fences in other people's yards in order to get to this family cemetery. And it was like two or three hours from where my parents live. And uh, when we got there, we saw all these people lasting with Scratchfield. And you look at it and you think, oh, this person died uh, because uh, Native Americans killed this person um, and Native Americans killed this person. Uh, but you're also aware that each of these people killed multiple Native Americans themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what happened in that time period. And so it would be very easy just to say, oh, this is just a family cemetery in the middle of Meridian, early Texans, you know, and it would be very easy to just say that's like an innocuous, like great pioneer story, Oregon Trail. Uh, but then you think, wait, like, and then a couple generations later, the family lore is that my uh, great, great, great grandmother was like feeding the Native Americans pancakes because the people in her community were so poor that they didn't have any food. And so in like, when you put that in the context of American history, then you think, wait, then the beginning, like the Plains Indians in Texas were fighting back, were fighting back. And then they were so overtaken by predominantly white settlers on the land which is sort of a term that we use in activist circles, settlers on the land versus native indigenous people, uh, that there were literally so few people left to, to fight back uh, that they were so poor that they were accepting um, charity pancakes from someone's back door. You know, that, and that could just be, it's a fun family story that I've heard for years, but then I put it in that context and I think, oh, that's the time of uh, when Andrew Jackson said everybody that's native has to, you know, get out or go, you know, Cherokee Trail of Tears. Like all, all of these things start to sort of come together in your mind. And um, I think it's, we're also part of a, a time in history now where there's a lot of rethinking about our history. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I think what I'm doing really fits into some of that as well. Right. And so you're, you're even in your own mind kind of rethinking I mean, as you and I are both white women who probably learned a lot of the same things in our high school junior high history classes mm -hmm. that, you know, were kind of encased in this, well, it's from the white perspective and it's shaped to be this quote unquote, like you said, fun family story, but it's actually really sobering what we have done. Yes. My people, like the people I come from, they killed Native Americans. There's no question about it. 
Right. Right. And you have, you know, a physical place you can go with that cemetery to see. Be reminded. Yeah. Yeah. So what, where do you go from there with that? Uh, well, I think, you know, I think it probably changes the way that you tell the family story. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, and then you probably try to learn about it in the deeper context and, uh, think through like, uh, there, there's a man that we invite a lot to come to my urban plunge programs who lives here in DC. His name is Mark Charles and he's a native activist and, um, he often says, like, when you hear the true story, uh, don't turn around, especially if you're white, and try to, like, what do I do now? That's what people always ask him. Mark, okay. what do you do? Okay. And um, what he says is, um, I need you to do nothing. Like, if you do something now, what you do is going to probably be more problematic than helpful. And it's going to be you mm-hmm. acting out of your trauma rather than acting out of anything help- healthy and helpful. Um, and so he he says, first, we need to lament. And so I think... Even like that set of family stories, the time I went to see that was just a, maybe six months ago. And so I'm still sort of mulling it over. I do think, you know, we can't just stay there either. You know, I think you spend some time really lamenting. And then I do think you've got to think through, okay, what does it mean to repent? Meaning like, oh, I'm going to totally botch this term, but it's like metanoia, like to turn around and go a different direction. And okay. um, I, that's where I think you do. You tell a different family story. And then I think you think through what does it mean to be somebody that what does it mean to repent of the ways that my family's taken from native peoples of Texas? Mm. Yeah. I I don't know. And I think it's easy just to like sit there and be like, I'm so cool for asking that question. And I think people can act that way in activist circles. And I don't think that's what God wants. I think God wants us to be uh, in humility, actually seeking out what true repentance looks like. And I'm not sure I know what it is. Thank you. That's really honest. And I appreciate Mark Charles sort of advice. I mean, I, advice isn't necessarily the right word, but exhortation. Invi- inv- yeah. Exhortation or invitation to just sit in the pain and the grief and the ownership of what our ancestors have done. And then, yeah, because I do think that we tend to want to just do something in response uh, to fix or put a bandaid over it. So yeah, then how would you say, uh, so your, your tours are not necessarily, uh, faith-based, right? They're not. Um, I will say like probably 80% of the groups that go on my tours right now are churches or like groups of Christians, probably because in some ways, because that's my network, but I think there's something about like uh, the application point of it, like in university, we talk a lot about inductive Bible study, like you're observing something, you're interpreting it, and then you're applying. And my tours can be like that too. And a lot of times I think there's just a real depth to an application point when you can say, Hey, all you mostly a young professional gentrifiers, if you want to follow the way of Christ, the way of Christ is humility. And this is what that might look like. And you can say humility without saying Jesus but I, I think uh, there's like a, just a much deeper motivation to do the right thing for somebody that follows Jesus. Um, but I have seen it really make a big impact on people that aren't Christians. And I think many, I get some people that go on that tour in particular that I, I still are, they have sort of the attitude of all development is good development. People just have to move. That's just the way it is. And that's always an interesting perspective for me to interact with because 
uh, it's just so far from what I think. Um, and I, I learned from that, but I, I do think, I don't know that I've had a Christian come on and have a dismissive attitude about the poor and marginalized. So I think well, that, it, that, a lot yeah, to work that's, with. that's encouraging. Then how would you say leading these tours has specifically shaped your faith in particular, your, your idea or definition of justice? Yeah, gosh, I think uh, I am a big believer in like what I call incarnational ministry or uh, I call it like place-based theology or theology of place. Uh, there are a couple books I've been reading recently that I think kind of are reinforcing and helping me think about what I've, what I'm, how I want to answer this question. Um, one is called uh, Church Forsaken by Jonathan Brooks. And one is called The Power of Proximity by uh, Michelle Warren. Both are IVP books that have come out in like the last three or four years or so. Um, and Jeremiah 29, that scripture has always been a pretty foundational uh, passage for me. Um, but I think for me, like, there's a lot about uh, how how we live our faith is really influenced by the place where we are and uh, where we find ourselves in geography, where we find ourselves in history, where we find ourselves uh, in space and time. Uh, and I think uh, we use the term like contextualized evangelism. It's important to me that I contextualize what it means to follow Jesus in 2019 in Washington, D.C., where uh, like the average rent is, you know, uh, I think at least over a thousand, possibly even over two thousand for a one bedroom in D.C. Mm -hmm. What does that mean in a city where uh, like the the median income here uh, barely makes enough money to be able to live here? Uh, You know, what does that mean? Um, How do I? how do I respond as a part of that? So it's made me just very much, there's some theologian, I think it's like, oh, I can't remember. Uh, maybe it's Karl Barth. I don't know. Somebody who says like, you need to do religion or do your faith with like the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And I think um, the deeper I get into these things, the more I think every place I create a tour and every stop seems to like draw forth a response in some way. And it just makes me think, a lot about like Christian ethics and what does it mean to be a Christian who's trying to live out following Jesus in the world. Um, when I think about justice, I think that like that example of the church was like what I was going to share um, mm-hmm. of like the old church and the new church, the old church being predominantly black and like very representative of the city that feels like it's being displaced in Washington, DC. And then this younger church that is like also seeking to reach people for the gospel and they're growing and they're trying to be diverse. And there are, like, there are very great things actually about both churches in that situation that, uh, that I think are honorable. Uh, and so to me, I think what it has really done to my concept of justice is I've just realized it's not that simple. Like there's a lot of complexity and it would be easy just to say like white church, bad, black church, good. Uh, and there are places in that story where I might lean that way. Uh, but, but it can't all ever be that easy. Um, and so I, I sort of hold that knowing that it's sometimes really hard to know. Uh, like when I think of the term justice, I also think of the term shalom. Like what does it mean for all things to be right? And what does it mean for all things to be right in a place and a situation where like the, the place where we find ourselves is so broken to begin with? Yeah, well then uh, completely kind of going in a different direction. How has your exploration of your community's history shaped your work with college or university students? 
I've gotten to do a couple, like this, this past month, I got to do uh, a tour for a group of GW students who were in, it was like a DC history class. It might've been about DC black history. I'm not really sure, but I took them on a tour around Georgetown university. We talked about uh, like the recent exposed history about Georgetown owning slaves and selling them South and all the sort of nuances and uh, controversies involved there. Uh, and it, it was just really fun. I mean, one, like they're just a really college students are just really inquisitive people and getting to present them with difficult dilemmas and ask them to see how they work it out is fascinating. Uh, I loved working with the professor who was excited about getting out of the classroom and finding different ways to uh, connect with the community. Her final project for this class was like the students had to find somebody and do an oral history. And I just thought, wow, like this, this professor wants to do something that's meaningful and is lasting, not just another paper that um, probably no one's ever going to read again, you know? Um, and I just, I love getting to share the fun facts with them. And I think helping students realize that there are pieces of history that are being lived right now. So there are things like, uh, like when we, in DC, a big part of the narrative is almost always the 1968 uh, you call it riots or uprising after Martin Luther King was shot. And uh, today we're in the midst of what people call the, the movement for black lives or the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, it was when I started giving the tours, there hadn't been a lot of overt protests happening. And I had to kind of like ex try to get people to get their minds into the, the time period of like, what was it like in 1968? Why would people go around and like wreck businesses in their own neighborhood um, but then Ferguson happened and then Baltimore happened. And then it was like, this is not, we're having a very different conversation now. Um, and it just helps students make a connection that, wow, like the life I live now has real impact and the world I live in, it's a part of the arc of history. And probably there are things we can learn from the past. Uh, and there are ways that maybe we don't want to repeat what we're seeing happen. Yeah. Uh, my husband and I recently watched um, Black Klansmen. I, I oh, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, okay. Well, spoiler alert. <laughs> Not really, but at the end, they um, show footage from a protest, I think, you know, in the civil rights era, and then they show footage right after that, uh, or almost superimposed um, to, this is like during the credits, actually. So it's not really a spoiler, it's credits, but they superimpose it onto footage from Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. And it, it was jarring for us just to see, yeah, like, this isn't, um, yeah, it wasn't that long ago, you know, like, mm -hmm. it wasn't that long ago, and it's also still now. So yeah, there's something about that, even for you to be able to take people to those places where protest was happening, and then they have something present day to, uh, I'm stumbling on the words here, but. Well, something present day to kind of relate to. I mean, there's just so many yeah. things, like I, I even think, gosh, what would it be like to do a tour like this around UVA's campus, you know, and you can just like, there's a very iconic photo of like a group of men with torches and you can like see the lawn at UVA in the background, you know? And so you just think, what would it be like to take a group of students to like tell them story about Thomas Jefferson, who this is like his university and he was a man that owned people and this is how he made his money and he didn't see a disconnect here. And then here, you know, 200 years later, this is what happened here 
and here's a picture. Do you see how like that building is in the background of that picture? And that was only a couple of years ago. And it's, it just, I, there's so much, I mean, I, there are times where I wish I could just do this kind of thing all the time. Cause I love it. It's, there's just so much, um, that can come out for, for folks as we just really start to think through, uh, how are we living and, um, where do we live? Yeah. Well, there's not much, um, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, but not enough time. So ah. to conclude, um, we usually conclude the, the podcast by asking if there's a particular quote or song or other set of words that have been meaningful to you lately. Um, and perhaps for you, um, we might ask if there's one related to the theme of justice. Yeah, well, so I brought a quote um, from a book that was um, from one of the, one of the um, people that we would say sort of coined the term Black Lives Matter or helped start the movement. Um, they wrote a book called uh, When They Call You a Terrorist. And um, the quote is about gentrification. So I thought that would fit because I've talked about that a lot today. Sure. Uh, so the, the author writes, um, Black and brown people have been moved out as young white people build exciting new lives standing on the bones of ours. So it's sobering, but I, I think um, those are the kind of things that I I haven't been able to share that quote yet on one of the tours where I talk a lot about gentrification, but it um, it's meaningful. That's very recent, and it's it's a lot about what are the young, exciting lives, and what is it? Where are the bones that we're standing on? Um, who's no longer alive because of the choices that we're making? Uh, and I say we, meaning like mostly young professionals that I'm usually, that's the, my normal audience are a lot of young professionals who are seeking to figure out how to, to not be a part of wrong, but be a part of right. Well, that's a great quote to end on. Thanks again so much for sharing your time with us and just sharing a little bit about how we can even do our own sort of justice tour in our own communities and digging deep to see how we can live more like Jesus. So thanks so much, Kate. Yeah, this was super fun. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.introversity.org. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.